Welcome to another episode of the 39A podcast. I'm Harsh Vastav, a law graduate from NSIU Bangalore, and I'm currently practicing at New Delhi. In today's episode, we have with us Mr. Arshdeep Singh Khurana. Mr. Khurana has an extensive legal practice at the courts of New Delhi and Punjab and Haryana. His practice primarily relates to white-collar offences with a fair bit of commercial law, arbitration and civil law, and I have the good fortune to be working under him at his chambers. Recently, Mr. Khurana represented a number of petitioners in a batch of over 200 petitions filed before the Honorable High Court of India by various individuals, challenging the constitutional validity of various provisions of the PMLA. The underlying ground of challenge was the draconian nature of the statute and the unburdened powers given to its officers under the PMLA, which are violative of various constitutional principles and fundamental rights. On 27th July, a three-judge bench of the Honorable Supreme Court rendered its verdict in Vijay Matanlal Chaudhary versus Union of India, upholding almost all the provisions of PMLA. And this judgment has been a talk of town across all legal spheres in the country since. I welcome Mr. Arshdeep Singh Khurana to this podcast today and thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you, Arsh. Now, sir, we've seen various articles and discussions critiquing the judgment in Vijay Madanlal Chaudhary. Regardless of what disagreements we might have with the judgment, it is what it is for the time being at least. And as a defense lawyer, one would have to represent the client within the realm of this judgment. Sir, in this podcast, we were hoping to take a different approach and look at the judgment from the lens of a defense lawyer and see how can one best represent their client given the circumstances and law. So, um, sir, beginning with the definition of money laundering first. The judgment has expanded the definition of money laundering to include even possession of any alleged proceed of crime as amounting to money laundering. Sir, is there any protection to a bona fide recipient of alleged proceeds of crime under the judgment? So, Harsh, uh, to answer that question, uh, I'll have to first explain you really what is a uh, proceeds of crime and what is a schedule offense and what is the structure of the act, if I can take a minute from that. So, the entire act is structured on what is called a schedule offense or what we also call a predicate offense. And it is the this offense from which the proceeds of crime are generated which are then laundered and then which gives right to a cause of action to the offense of uh, money laundering. So a schedule offense, there is a schedule under the act which has a number of offenses. Initially, of course, it started with uh, serious offenses like terrorism and narcotics. And then the schedule was expanded over the years. And today you have a number of offenses under the IPC also, which are schedule offenses. Uh, to give you an example, say the, the offense of cheating is now a schedule offense. So X cheats Y and generates uh, rupees 100 as the crime money. That becomes what is called the proceeds of crime. It's defined as any property which is derived directly or indirectly from any criminal activity related to a schedule offense. It is what you do with this uh, proceeds of crime which uh, then becomes uh, the offense of uh, money laundering. Now, uh, the Act itself uh, defines what is money laundering under Section 3. And it's uh, uh, any use, possession, layering, projecting, claiming the proceeds of crime in any manner now becomes an offense under Section 3. So as far as the uh, bona fide recipient of the proceeds of crime is concerned, uh, the section itself has some inbuilt safeguards. 
and the most that most important safeguard is that you have to when you receive it if you knowingly receive this proceeds of crime and knowingly that this is proceeds of crime that is generated from a uh, schedule offense then you may be guilty if you are a bona fide recipient without having knowledge that this what you are receiving is actually proceeds of crime then you are not guilty under the under section 3 the judgment itself has not gone too much into this aspect though it has uh, expanded the definition of uh, what is proceeds of crime but uh, as far as a bona fide recipient of uh, proceeds of crime is concerned the safeguards are still there in uh, section 3 and they have not been diluted in any manner okay sir so basically intention is still a factor which is considered while deciding whether someone has uh, is guilty of the offense of money laundering correct intention knowledge mens rea is all of it i'll give you a very a simple example as a lawyer if we receive uh, fees from our uh, clients i don't know today whether that proceeds of crime or not so i am today i do not have that knowledge and therefore a i am a bona fide recipient of the fees and i today a lawyer can't be uh, made guilty of charged with the offense of uh, money laundering i think sir a lot of our listeners would be very happy with that answer that at least lawyers are not considered uh, within the ambit sir so moving on to the next question uh, the honorable supreme court has held that ed is not bound to provide the uh, what is called the enforcement case information report or the ecir to the accused persons now so how is that going to affect the rights of the uh, accused persons i think it uh, we've been arguing this for a very long time and we also argued this in the supreme court that it uh, seriously prejudices an accused to not know what is the what are the contents of the ecir because though the ed says that the ecir is an internal document it has no statutory backing etc an ecir is really the initiation or the starting point of a ed investigation and it is what they record in the ecir is then investigated the persons who they suspect are involved in money laundering are also named in the ecir so it's really the starting point and we have always been arguing that it's akin to what is an fir the courts in uh, in our country over the years have held uh, both in the context of an fir and even otherwise under criminal law as a first principle that an accused has to know what is the allegation against him and it is important to know that so that he can uh, you know give an answer prepare for his defense invoke his uh, statutory rights like in our filing for an anticipatory bail etc so really in fact the right to know what is the acquisition has actually been held to be a facet of article 21 such as it's a fundamental right and in this vein we had argued that when you are investigating a person under the pmla he has to know what is the allegation now this entire procedure is completely opaque right from the recording of the ecir to a point where a person is summoned a copy of the ecir is not given a person the allegation is not there in the summons and everything under the sun from a person's financial uh, statements his financial record his family's financial records are uh, sought by the ed so really not providing an ecir is like uh, is it's it's completely opaque when you go and face the ed you don't even know what is the allegation so it then gives the handle or the leeway to an ed officer to misuse his powers and uh, Uh, we can ask it. It actually then becomes a fishing and roving inquiry against you, without even you knowing what is the allegation. That's the problem. 
right so so so, uh, so what we we've seen in cases where uh, the quashing of an fir is being sought there are multiple cases which are filed daily so sir is it possible for the accused to approach the court seeking say quashing of the ecir especially given the fact that ecir might not even be available with the accused at the time so uh, uh, i would say the right is still available because it gets a part of uh, the uh, inherent powers of a high court under 482 so a person who is facing an uh, ed investigation can always approach the high court but he is he'll be handicapped without the ecir and now when you go to the high court earlier we used to ask for quashing of the ecir now the prayer may be tweaked to ask for quashing of all investigation under the uh, pmla so the the remedy is still available but i think it's become it's become more difficult because when you will approach say the high court for quashing under 482 the high court will also ask what is the allegation and without you knowing what is the allegation it's very difficult even to comprehensively raise grounds for, for uh, the challenge so yes it has become difficult though the remedy is still available uh sir so under pmla uh, the offense of money laundering as you rightly said is premised on the existence of the scheduled offense and without the scheduled offense there cannot be an offense under pmla and uh, the judgment also says that if there is a discharge or acquittal in the scheduled offense trial or say a quashing of the scheduled offense fir the pmla case against the accused cannot continue so could you please elaborate on these cases of uh, discharge acquittal and quashing and how difficult or you know how time time consuming each of these would be so uh, again to just uh, tell you that uh, again that it had been a consistent argument across all forums uh, that dehors uh, or without the schedule offense there can't be pmla and the, it was a very logical argument which was emanating from the uh, statute itself and we didn't need judgments for it because the way the uh, proceeds of crime are uh, defined the proceeds of crime are something which arises from the schedule offense so you need a schedule offense and it is those proceeds of crime which are then laundered and then becomes the offense of money laundering so our consistent argument was that if there is no schedule offense there is no proceeds of crime and there is no question of uh, commission of the offense of money laundering now uh, that's the silver lining in the judgment and this argument though the high courts across the country have taken different views uh, dd contrarily argued that no we are a standalone offense and we just need jurisdiction we just need the commission of the schedule offense as to start our investigation then what happens there thereafter with the schedule offense is not our concern once we get that jurisdiction and start we don't really care about what happens in the schedule offense uh, the supreme court has struck down their argument and uh, has very clearly held up that the proceeds of crime is the core of the offense and without proceeds of crime without a schedule offense there is no question of continuation or commencement of a money laundering uh, case though there are there are a few exceptions to that in the judgment so uh, i think it is now become imperative that uh, uh, to see what happens in the schedule offense so uh, so how long do these processes of say discharge acquittal and quashing would generally take and how easy or difficult is it to get any of these remedies and you know how would a defense lawyer decide which of these course of actions to take see it depends on case to case and really on the facts uh, of a case on you know whether you go for a quashing or you make out a case for discharge or you face trial and then get ultimately acquitted 
and the standards and parameters are different at every stage. Uh, quashing is is the quickest remedy and also the most difficult because to make out a case of quashing, you have to show that the allegation on the face of it and taken to be true does not make out the offense. And the, the parameters of quashing have been very well laid down by the Supreme Court right from the judgment in uh, Bhajan Lal's case. So quashing is something uh, which, uh, depending upon what the allegations are, we advise our clients to do. It is also from various high court, uh, it, you know, it, it depends on which high court you are before and that time span is then determined. As far as discharge is concerned, that's a time-consuming process because first the FIR is registered or an investigation is started in a special act. Uh, then it goes through the stage of investigation and then a complaint or a charge sheet is filed, which then our, our, the accused is summoned, he goes there, he, the, there is a stage of scrutiny of documents, etc. And then you finally reach the stage of charge. So it is a time-consuming process. But really speaking, uh, the stage of discharge is the first stage after a charge sheet is filed where an accused can then uh, get a finding of innocence. Uh, the stage of acquittal is the stage which is right at the end of the trial. Uh, unfortunately, in our country, the the time periods are uh, very, very long. The judicial process is very slow as far as trials are concerned. So the trials, uh, the acquittal will take a lot of time. I would say from quashing up to the stage of discharge or the stage of uh, acquittal, it is a time-consuming and long process. Right, sir. And uh, sir, so... Another situation could be where, say, a closure report is filed by the investigating officer in the scheduled offense instead of a charge sheet. Uh, sir, do you think a closure report would have the same effect as a discharge, acquittal, or quashing in as much as the PMLA proceedings are concerned that you know the, uh, the PMLA proceedings cannot continue? So that's an interesting point you make because uh, a closure report is not something which is dealt with in the judgment. The uh, judgment uses the words quashing, discharge, or acquitted, and also uses the words by or finally absolved by a competent court of jurisdiction. Now, as you would know, what a closure report is something which is filed by the police or the agency which is investigating after uh, it completes its investigation and comes to a conclusion that no offense is made out. Under the CRPC, when a closure report is filed before a magistrate, and again, that procedure has been very well laid down by various judgments of the Supreme Court. The, the jurisdictional court is not bound to accept the finding of the agency. It can either uh, accept it, it can so no, I don't accept it and summon the accused. It can issue a notice to the complainant who can then file a protest petition. So I would say as far as closure reports are concerned, to get any relief under the PMLA arising from that case, the competent court would have to accept the uh, closure report and come to a finding that no offense is made out. So I would say that the very filing of a closure report will not give uh, relief or remedy to an accused uh, facing a PML investigation. Of course, during the uh, pendency of the procedure before the competent court, whether to accept the closure report or not, you can always argue before a court that till that stage happens, the PMLA investigation should be stayed or stalled of offense. So if they have not found and subject to what the court holds, why should a PMLA investigation continue? So, um, sir, stemming from the relationship between the scheduled offense and the PMLA offense and from what you said earlier about the trial, the investigation 
in India are taking a lot of time. So, uh, sir, do you think this would be a bigger problem in, uh, like, given the fact that the investigation or the trial in the scheduled offense might proceed at a very slow pace? For instance, the FIR might be, say, registered in 2015 and the investigating agency might still not have filed a charge sheet till date. So the trial in the scheduled offense cannot commence. But at the same time, ED might have registered the ECIR, arrested the person, filed the complaint and you know initiated its trial as well. So wouldn't this cause great prejudice to the accused person and is there a way out of this? Well, you're absolutely right and this is practically the problem which we are facing in a number of cases. Uh, that is to say that um, there is an FIR which is registered but say by the CBI or the local police. They don't even uh, commence investigation. And the minute the FIR registered, the ED comes in and registers an ECIR. And the ED moves with great pace. So even uh, without any inch of investigation moving in the schedule offense, in the ED case, you'll have them summoning the accused, arresting the accused, attaching their properties. And it, it, it's, a, it's a big problem. And uh, we have been arguing in various courts. We have had cases where, like I said, there is no investigation in the schedule offense and the ED has arrested the person, investigated, filed a complaint and the person are languishing in jail for years. And uh, there is no investigation in the schedule offense. And ultimately, uh, imagine a case where after in investigation in the schedule offense, the agency files a closure report and that is accepted. That's the end of the PMLA case. But by the time that happens, uh, severe damage is done to the reputation and dignity and life of an accused because he's uh, arrested or his properties are attached. He's financially crippled. So it's it's a big uh, it's a big problem. And but uh, as far as this judgment is concerned, the the silver lining is that at least they have held now without the schedule offence, there is no PMLA. So now. I think one of the grounds which is available to us to argue across, say, in a bail petition or to file, you file a quashing or even at the stage of discharge, one of the arguments which we can now make is, you know, look what it's the proceedings have not even commenced in the schedule offense. And at the very least, you can't keep a person in custody in a case like that. So is there a way out of this? Uh, for instance, I think Section 44 uh, talks about clubbing of the scheduled offense and the AD offense. So how long, uh, you know, how beneficial would that be for an accused to probably club the cases so that, you know, he's not uh, prejudiced unnecessarily because of the uh, delay on part of the investigating agency in the scheduled offense? Yeah, so this is a very interesting, uh, again, an interesting point you make. If you look at 44.1c, which is the provision dealing with clubbing of a PMLA uh, trial and the scheduled offense trial, uh, the uh, provision only gives the power to an ED authority, to an accused, to do this. And in fact, we've been, uh, we've done and we are arguing this in a number of cases where uh, the uh, schedule offense is pending in court A and the ECIR uh, proceedings are pending in court B. And as an accused, the authority is not gone for clubbing. As an accused, we have gone to courts and say, you please club the two. Because, uh, and I think it's become more imperative now to do this after the judgment. Because then both cases will uh, proceed together. Unlike a situation where uh, the PMLA case has commenced with grace, uh, great haste and you've reached the stage of judgment and there is no investigation even in the schedule offense case. 
So now, in fact, we are advising a lot of our uh, clients that as an accused, we must seek uh, clubbing of the two cases so that they both proceed at the very least uh, at the same pace. And the ED case is not moving faster than the scheduled offense cases. So, so uh, moving on to the provision of bail under PMLA, which is uh, probably the biggest reason why the PMLA is called a draconian statute. So, uh, Section 45 of the PMLA provides for the twin conditions for seeking bail under PMLA. And that provision has been upheld by the Honorable Supreme Court. So, so for the benefit of the audience, uh, the twin conditions are that the public prosecutor shall be given an opportunity to oppose the bail. And that the court must be satisfied that there are reasonable grounds that the accused is not uh, guilty of the offense that he's accused of committing and that the accused is not likely to commit an offense while on bail. Now, sir, given the extremely stringent conditions, how can an accused person protect themselves from arrest by ED? Just to put this in perspective, though the Supreme Court has upheld the uh, conditions as constitutionally valid, I would say they have diluted the uh, test a bit to say that uh, the court now does not have to come to a finding of guilt, uh, but the court has to look at a prima facie view as to whether there is a uh, commission or not. And the court has also said that you don't the, the the court which is dealing with the bail application does not have to meticulously look at all the material. This was also the law laid down in a judgment of the Supreme Court in Ranjit Singh Bramsey's case, where it was dealing with a provision under the Mukoka, which is a similar provision to that of uh, PMLA. So that so now the test, though the the conditions are now applicable, and will apply on all cases across the board. The test has been lowered a bit as far as an accused is concerned. But having said that, whether what happens when you argue these cases practically will have to be seen. But as I think as far as an accused is concerned now, there are a number of arguments uh, which can be made. And I think the crux really is when the court is looking at the material, the crux is what is the documentary material which is available with the ED to show whether a person is uh, guilty or not. Uh, because we've seen in a number of cases, the ED mostly relies upon statements which are recorded of various persons. So I think as a, as a defense counsel now, our primary argument is going to be that you do not only look at the uh, document, the oral evidence, which are the statements recorded under 50. And the, really the reason for that is at the stage of bail, which is actually a, a, you know, a primary stage uh, during the course of these proceedings. An accused does not have a right to cross-examine the persons whose statements are recorded. So take a situation where ED uh, records uh, statements which are tailored to their case. It then becomes very difficult for a defense counsel to go and argue that, uh, please uh, do not look at these statements. So I think the argument which is now available on which I think we should, as defense counsels make, is to say that you do not only look at the statements, but please look at the documentary evidence which supports that statement. And if you don't have the documentary evidence, Applying the test, which has not, not been laid down by the Supreme Court, an accused should be uh, granted bail. The other defense which has been uh, made available through this judgment and other judgments of the Supreme Court is that they have said that the right to a fair investigation and trial is now a facet of Article 21. Uh, the Supreme Court has held that in so far as constitutional courts are concerned, the High Court and the Supreme Court, when they're dealing with these bail applications, if they feel that 
there is an infraction of these part three rights, which is to say that there hasn't been a fair investigation or there is a chance of delay in trials, the court can then not apply these conditions and grant a bail to the accused. So I think one of the arguments which is now available at the stage of bail is to say that uh, please look at the material and the investigation has not been uh, fair in this case and therefore there is an infraction of 21 and therefore do not apply these conditions and grant bail. So I think these are the defenses which are now, they are limited, but these arguments can still be made. So, uh, sir, one of the preconditions uh, according to the statute was, uh, as I said, that the court should be satisfied that there are reasonable grounds that the person is not guilty. But as you say, sir, it has been diluted by the recent judgment to a more of a prima facie case. But sir, uh, given that we most of the accused would not even be aware of the contents of the ECR since it, it has not been given to them or the allegations or the exactly what material is there against the person, wouldn't it be a, you know some sort of an obstacle while seeking bail and wouldn't we be in a similar situation to what we were, as we discussed, uh, in the case of quashing, where uh, we don't even know what, what is the evidence, what is the allegation against us? Yeah, it is, it is a difficult situation, definitely. There is uh, no doubt about that. And I think more than your regular, your anticipatory bail is now become, it's, it's an illusionary uh, remedy under the PMLA, I would say, because if, in, there is a constitutional bench judgment of our Supreme Court in Sushil Agarwal's case, which is to say that when you move an anticipatory bail application, you need to, in your application, deal with the allegations, give an answer to it, and say how your custody is not required uh, and that's a constitutional bench decision. Now, if you look at the uh, PMLA proceedings, you don't even know what is the allegation. You don't even have the ECIR. So what do you go to the court with? So it, it, it becomes very difficult. Now, practically, I think what will happen is you move an anticipatory bail without knowing what is the allegation. And the court will ask the EDU, please file a status report. And then at that stage, maybe the allegations will come out and you give a rebuttal to that. So it's become very difficult. Yeah. So the proviso of uh, Section 45 makes certain uh, exceptions where the rigors of Section 45 of the PMLA would not apply. It says that uh, a person who's under 16 years of age or a woman or is sick or infirm or if the accused either on his own or along with other co-accused, the amount of money laundering involved is less than one crore they may be released on bail if the special court uh, so directs. So, how difficult is it to get a bail under the proviso where the section 45 twin conditions do not apply? If you look at the wordings and which you just uh, read out, it uses the word may. It says the court may not apply, may grant bail. So, firstly, it is uh, discretionary. Uh, the, uh, the power is with the court whether to grant you relief under the proviso or not. And uh, though it says it uses the word women, sick, infirm, etc. End of the day, it's left to the court's uh, discretion to determine your uh, medical ailment and whether that is fit enough or your age is good enough for you to for you to fall under the proviso. In other words, just because you're a woman, it's not uh, mandatory for the court to not apply the provision on you and grant you bail. So the, the proviso is there, but I think with the the discretion being there, uh, I would say it's equally difficult for uh, even a woman who from against whom there are allegations 
or a old person whom against their allegations to say that you please do not apply the proviso to me. Of course, if you are sick or infirm and your medical condition is serious, those things are taken by the court uh, into consideration. So, so the general trend is that uh, even the special courts are not very open with exercising the jurisdiction and uh, their uh, discretion under the proviso. Yeah, I would put it differently uh, to say that just because you're a woman or you're sick or you're infirm, it's not it's not that you would be it's it's going to be easy for you to get bail. You'll still have to deal with the allegations. Sir, um, in another recent judgment of Satyendra Kumar Antil. A two-judge bench of the Honorable Supreme Court had laid down various guidelines for granting bail. For instance, uh, it held that if a person has not been arrested during the filing of the charge sheet, or in case of an ED, uh, or in case of ED a complaint, he or she is ought to be granted bail. Or there are other line of judgments which have held that where the trial is going to take significant time, the accused ought to be enlarged on bail. So, how do you think this interacts with the restrictive approach on bail taken by the larger bench of the Honorable Supreme Court in Vijay Madanlal Chaudhary or the uh, provisions provided for in the statute? Judgment in uh, Vijay uh, Madanlal, judgment we're dealing with here, it does not deal with the latest view in Antil's case. Though Antil's uh, decision is a judgment by two honorable judges of the Supreme Court and uh, Vijay Mandalal is three honorable judges. It uh, Until's decision came much later, it came closer to when this judgment had come. So obviously it, the arguments were over by then. So this aspect of what Until has laid, which is to say that in a case where a complaint or a charge sheet is filed without arresting an accused before the court, he or she ought to be granted bail because the agency did not feel the need to arrest the person during investigation. So there is no need that uh, for a court to take that person into custody uh, pending the uh, trial. Now, what the latest judgment of Antil did, and there were two other earlier views, but the, 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 the third judgment dealt with what happens in a case where under the special acts, such as the PMLA, etc., where you have these restrictive conditions, uh, and a complaint is filed without arresting an accused. And there the until judgment made it very clear that even in those cases, when an accused comes before the court post filing of the complaint and is not arrested during the investigation, the court has to grant bail. So in so far as uh, until is concerned, that is definitely a relief to persons who are not arrested during investigation. Because otherwise, if this view was not there, uh, you would go to the court when you're summoned. And there again, you will have to face these rigors of 45. Uh, with the complaint being there and de- deal with the allegations in merit without uh, you know even reaching the stage of trial so the until judgment is a relief definitely and it is it is being applied by various uh, courts uh, at least so, so far as delhi is concerned we know case where after uh, madanlal uh, in when the accused appeared before the court they relied upon until's case and held that un- that Madanlal did not deal with until or the situation in until and granted relief to those accused. So until is a relief. In so far as the other judgments are concerned, and there have been two recent views of the Supreme Court in the context of uh, SFIO cases, two recent judgments by Justice Chandrachur, uh, which where they have said that if there is a chance of delay in trial, and again they have linked it to the right to fair trial under twenty one. The Supreme Court has very clearly said that uh, these uh, these uh, conditions 
will not be an issue and you can grant bail to an accused so now moving on to the last topic for today and this is the hotly contested issue of provisional attachment so could you please explain a little on what is a provisional attachment order and what is the procedure that is generally followed by ed to attach a property so very quickly uh, the uh, the provisions which deal with uh, provisional attachment under the pml are essentially section uh, 5 and section 8 section 5 is what is the uh, what is the how do you when do you provisionally attach a property and the circumstances and what is the validity period of an attachment and eight is the adjudication procedure to put it simply an attachment is done when an officer apprehends that a property which is involved in money laundering will not be available or will you know uh, be sold or alienated and therefore it will not be available for in the proceeding under the pmla starts so what an officer does is he attaches those uh, proceeds of crime now these uh, proceeds of crime are attached for a period of 180 days from the period of the from the date of the attachment and once the attachment takes place the next thing which the officer has to do is within a period of 30 days from the attachment he has to file what is called a complaint before the adjudicating authority now adjudicating authority is an authority established under section 6 of the act and as uh, retired uh, officers or uh, irs officers or officers who are competent to be district judges uh, in, in the adjudicating authority is in delhi and it's now uh, there is an officer who's there so you the ed files the complaint before the adjudicating authority the adjudicating authority looks at the complaint has to formulate its reason to believe to come to a conclusion that whether a show cause notice has to be issued or not a show cause notice is issued to the person who either owns the property or where the authority feels that x person is involved in money laundering a show cause notice is issued to that person then that person appears before the authority a right to file a reply is given and there are arguments which are addressed and then the authority has to either confirm or set aside the attachment so this procedure is uh, given under section 8 and uh, once the uh, property when once the uh, provisional attachment is confirmed the under 85 of the act the ed officer has a right to take possession of the property now this was also one of the major arguments which was being made as defense counsels before the supreme court is to say that if there is a confirmation you are and you possess ed possesses the property or takes the property away from the person who is either owns it or enjoys that property it's a very drastic step because merely because it is confirmed you are now taking the property away from the person so supreme court has agreed with the submission though it it has not said that it is unconstitutional but it has said that you can only take possession in rarest of rarest cases and the ed will now have to give reasons why a post confirmation it is taking possession of the property okay sir so the judgment also makes a distinction between attachment and confiscation could you please elaborate a little on uh, that aspect sir the attachment proceeding starts from the provisional attachment order uh, validity period of 180 days within 30 days a complaint is filed authority decides it if it sets aside the attachment that's the end of it but if it confirms the attachment then those remain conf- confirmed during the pendency of the trial now after it is confirmed the fate of the property then gets linked to the trial of the scheduled offense now say a complaint is filed 
in the before the special court and the and the PMLA trial commences. Now, after the PMLA trial finishes, if a person is convicted, then that attached property, which is confirmed by the authority and possession, may or may not be taken by the ED, now gets confiscated uh, to the uh, the government. Essentially, the government then confiscates and owns the or takes over the property. And if there is an acquittal, then of course the property is released either to the person from whom it was attached or even a bona fide claimant can come to the special court and say, look, it, it the property belongs to me and therefore it should be released to me. So confiscation, to put it simply, is a stage which happens post the PMLA trial and is dependent upon the uh, outcome of the PMLA trial. And confirmation or possession is a stage which is linked to the adjudication mechanism under the Act. Sir, so in these circumstances, could you elaborate a little on what a person whose property has been either provisionally attached or you know, confirmed do to get it released uh, from attachment? There are two, two remedies uh, really for a person whose property is attached. Uh, the attachment order can be challenged before a writ court straight away. Uh, the grounds of challenge are limited and the law is again very well settled that when you invoke the uh, great remedy of the High Court or the Supreme Court, uh, when an alternate uh, statutory remedy is available, the grounds of challenge are very limited. You will have to show some, you will have to raise some legal ground to go to the writ because the writ court is going to say that, you know, look, you have a statutory mechanism, go to the authority, why are you here? So the writ remedy is definitely not available on uh, factual grounds. But uh, to give you an example, say an attachment is made uh, in respect of a scheduled offense where a person is discharged or is uh, the proceedings are quashed. So there you can always argue, why should I even go to the authority? This is without jurisdiction. So in a case where an attachment itself is without jurisdiction, you can always go to a writ court. And in the example I just gave, you go to the red court and say that, uh, you know, there is no question of attachment because there is no scheduled offense. And therefore, there is no proceeds of crime. So why are you attaching? But in a case where you have factual defenses, where you are going on the merits of the attachment, your remedy is only available before the adjudicating authority. And if there is a confirmation, then you have a statutory appeal. The first appeal goes to the tribunal under Section 26 of the Act. And in fact, you also have a second of statutory appeal before the High Court, the jurisdictional High Court under Section 42. So these are the two remedies available in the case of attachments. So, um, sir, another question is that on one hand, the Honorable Supreme Court has held that no FIR is required for ED to initiate attachment proceedings. And on the other, it says that not all cases would require attachment. Now, given that the threshold has been put so low, how do you think, sir, it is going to play out practically? Like, do you think the number of attachments is going to increase? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, because, like I said, while the Supreme Court has upheld constitutionality of various provisions, and also, like you said, has said in, in exceptional cases, they can even commence... Uh, or issue an attachment order without the schedule offense. But I think what the Supreme Court really has also done, and I think that's the silver lining in the judgment, and something which as defense counsels we should definitely explore, is to say that now they have made, uh, given two or three very important findings. One, of course, is the finding which we discussed that without a schedule offense, when there is a discharge, acquittal, 
uh, or quashing there is no question of money laundering what it has also done is also said that the the core of the offense of money laundering is proceeds of crime and there is a one very important finding it's, it which says that it has to be construed strictly and it is not that every property uh, of an accused who's facing the uh, money laundering investigation becomes proceeds of crime you now have to really establish that link uh, between the proceeds of crime and the scheduled offense and it is only if the proceeds of crime are derived from the scheduled offense then there is going to be an attachment or a money laundering proceedings and if there is no uh, derivation or there is no link then that property uh, cannot be attached so i think it's become while you're right when you say that they make you know and they can now very easily commence it but it's it's become harder for the ed to establish and in every case now they will have to establish the link between the property attached or the proceeds of crime and the uh, schedule offense so so uh, given the new law so uh, probably the properties which were purchased by the accused person before the check period would be protected from attachment would that be the case sir yes we can say that so uh, because uh, the schedule offense to give you an example say a person acquires a property in say 1990 or the year 2000 when even the act was not in force and the commission of the offense uh, takes place later say in the year of in the 2010 or in 2012 so why uh, it's it it will be an argument for the defense to say that there is no question of uh, that property being derived from the schedule offense because uh, the years are different when the property is purchased or derived in say 1990 and the commission of the offense is in 2010 so that argument is available but the contra to that is now the supreme court also says that uh, you will have to see the date on which the offense is committed so say example you you acquire that property in 1990 from proceeds of crime uh, but you continue to use that property till the year 2010 and then 2010 the offense becomes that offense is added to the schedule so mainly because you are using that property though acquired in 1990 it becomes uh, proceeds of crime so these are issues of interpretation i think these issues will get settled when the uh, courts are dealing with various situations and and uh, how they apply this uh, judgment that uh, brings us to the end of our podcast today thank you so much sir for giving us your time i'm sure this is going to be uh, very helpful and for a number of people to understand the implications and practicalities around the pmla uh, uh, recent judgment in vijay madanlal choudhury and the statute itself thank you so much sir thank you much ma'am